Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. So you've probably heard about the coronavirus, and it's kind of a big fear thing going around the world, that who's going to get the coronavirus, how we're going to treat it. Well, the first person diagnosed with it here in the US is currently being treated by a robot. But what's this robot actually able to do? Well, it's got a stethoscope, which is able to help doctors take the man's vitals, communicate with them, and they've got a screen on it, so you can actually see the doctors on the robot. Now, about two weeks ago, the hospital tested its protocol for treating patients with highly contagious diseases such as MERS and Ebola. The whole reason all of this got changed was probably because of that Ebola outbreak and now that's why we're seeing robots. But you know, although this is a virus, it kind of reminds me of Chernobyl. Now, if you remember Chernobyl with the big nuclear meltdown, they couldn't actually send humans in all the time. They had to send in robots and all the robots, they died because of the radiation. But it's just interesting to see we're having a similar kind of a event happening with a virus that we can't have humans get involved with. So we have to send in robots. And although you've got the World Health Organization, kind of the emergency committee saying it's way too early to declare a major outbreak, this type of an event is going to make a lot of hospitals, much like the one in Seattle, can I consider, hey, you know what, if we have a big outbreak, we can't use humans, maybe we should invest in these humanoid robot doctors. So the next time you might go to your local hospital, you might not deal with a human, you might deal with an AI robot. And you know what, that leads us to the next topic, because talking a little bit more about AI robots, specifically in Washington, uh, the state could actually be a big pioneer in regulating artificial intelligence if lawmakers and Microsoft get their way. So there's a series of bills introduced to seek to blaze a trail for this new frontier of technological innovation. The legislation focuses on biometric screening and digital profiling. Now, those topics, they're part of a broader set of tech-related bills that the state legislature is considering. Now, Microsoft and its president, Brad Smith, has been pleading with regulators to enact laws governing artificial intelligence for months now. The company says that it wants to safeguard its place before the technology becomes too disruptive. Smith notes that last year, artificial intelligence guidelines established in the state would have impacted globally because of the tech companies based here. Seattle's other big tech titan, Amazon, also has kind of started quietly advocating for regulation of AI technology. You know, its CEO Jeff Bezos said in September that the company's public policy team is kind of working on proposed regulations for facial recognition technology. Keep in mind that both Amazon and Microsoft develop their own facial recognition software. Now, skeptics claim that Amazon and Microsoft's involvement in this whole legislative process, and it's specifically in their home state, is all in an effort to ensure regulations don't become 
too intense for their own businesses. But regardless of the intent, you know, with Microsoft, they were saying that they want to see regulators get out and ahead of artificial intelligence instead of playing the catch-up game, which they're currently doing with data privacy. So here's a very brief brush over some of the tech-related bills that are kind of pointing out at the moment some of the issues that need to be addressed. So the first one is data privacy. Now, the Washington Privacy Act aims to give consumers new rights to ownership over their data, including the right to access, delete, correct, move their data, or opt out of data collection. Number two, you've got facial recognition. Now, the bill requires human review of any decisions made using facial recognition technology that produces legal effects. Number three, you've got biometric data. So facial recognition software, you know, that's one method of biometric screening, but a system of identifying individuals using biological distinctions like fingerprints, iris scans, well, this bill grants individuals legal ownership of their biometric data. It says that each person in the Washington state, quote, owns and has an exclusive property right to the person's biometric identifiers. Then you've got Artificial Intelligence Profiling Act. Now, this is a very important one because this bill would prohibit the use of artificial intelligence technology to determine a person's state of mind, character, protected class, status, political affiliation, religious beliefs or religious affiliation, immigration status or employability. Now, in any public space, that's, that's not just for private. It also forbids Washington residents from using AI profiling to deny service to customers, making hiring decisions, or any other action that produces, again, legal effects. Then you've got the Digital Equity Act. So the goal of this legislation is to expand access to broadband internet and digital skills training for Washington residents who have been left behind in the innovation economy. And then lastly, this is, this is a big one, blockchain. There's two bills introduced in this session that kind of go around blockchain, the system of digital record keeping underlying the cryptocurrency and kind of other technologies. One of the bills creates a work group to study possible applications for blockchain technology in Washington state, such as banking, financial services, public record keeping, and real estate. The second bill is focused on updating how the state treats electronic transactions. So either way, you know, it's pretty clear that Washington is trying to stay five steps ahead of the curve with all of these bills. So very, very good news there. Moving on to something different, the iMac. It's a pretty iconic computer. Everybody's at least used an iMac once, and as we know, it's by Apple. Now, they've always carried over a little something from their vintage all-in-one Macintoshes. So like, I mean, you probably didn't know this, but the bezel on a brand new iMac, just one that you can buy from Apple today, is the same dimensions, is the same thickness as one on a 1986 Macintosh Plus. Also, you know, if you've got your iMac box just lying around, go up to it and have a look at the part. It's like a sticker. It's got a label of what your specs are on your computer, which your hard drive, whatever. At the bottom of that sticker, you should see the famous Apple line, Macintosh, think different. But like all things, it's time to have a little bit of an update. And while the design of the iMac has received a few low refinements over the last few years, it's, you know, it's to make the main body a little thinner, a little sleeker. 
Apple has just kind of recently been mulling over making a dramatic change to the whole iMac design. So they had a couple of recent patent applications and they were published by the US Patent and Trademark Office and Apple's exploring the boundaries of making the iMac out of a single sheet of glass. In its basic form, the iMac would consist of the sheet that has kind of curved lower portion, one edge, and that sits on the desk, be used to hold input devices and all that sort of stuff. But as it would be a single piece, the curved lip would not be enough to kind of keep its glass upright. So they, to kind of solve this, Apple proposes to use a wedge. Uh, it's kind of a section that props up the glass. And obviously on that little section, you would get ports. Now, another version kind of switches out the single piece of uh, glass for two panels that overlap at the curve, with the wedge helping to kind of hold the vertical glass in place while the lower lip kind of rests against the assembly. There's a slot at the curved section that could allow a keyboard through, and it just slides through the kind of cut out, or you could slide through the section of a MacBook keyboard. So there's also this suggestion that the glass lip could actually be an embedded keyboard, and that possibly could take advantage of a pattern that we saw a little while ago for a glass keyboard. So, hey, you might get an iMac, and instead of having physical buttons, you get this nice glass. Everything's all glass in the future. But something to remember is that Apple, they followed numerous patent applications, even on a weekly basis. But while the existence of filing, you know, it kind of indicates the area that Apple's trying to go with the research and development efforts, doesn't necessarily guarantee that the concepts described are gonna appear in a real future product or anything like that. So, but you know, just even looking at this type of a design change, this is so radical, but it does make the iMac slightly thinner. And I really hope that Apple doesn't do that because I mean, they just started to get things right. They got the Mac Pro Tower, which is a big massive desktop, which was a nice upgrade from the little small trash can that we had before. And they've got the thicker MacBook Pros. Now, granted, they're only thicker by a really small amount, but that's very un-Apple. Making things thinner for a desktop though, I really hope Apple doesn't do that because it's first of all, it's gonna ruin the hardware. You're gonna have to cram in stuff that's basically laptop hardware into a desktop. And you're also gonna have really, really bad thermal management. So hopefully this is just a concept or maybe it's not even an iMac. Maybe it's something different. We'll just have to wait and see. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So in transportation, we have some prehistorical news. Tesla's market cap hit $100 billion, speeding past Volkswagen, which currently sits at $88 billion. But you know what? Overall, Tesla's shares, you know, they've more than doubled since October, and they're up more than 30% this year. And that's, it's still not, this is only January, right? Now, Tesla surpassed Ford and GM, 
combined in market capitalization just earlier this month, and the last car maker still ahead of Tesla is literally just Toyota. And they've obviously got a market cap a lot higher, which is 233 billion. But I mean, this is this is truly amazing. Anyway, for any company, but Tesla, you know, they delivered only 367,500 vehicles in 2019. And although that's like, wow, you know, that's that's a lot of vehicles. When you compare that to Ford that delivered 2.4 million and General Motors that delivered 2.9 million vehicles over the same period and combined, they're not even worth what Tesla's worth as a single company, really puts things in perspective. Now, Volkswagen, again, and Tesla's way above them, delivered nearly 11 million vehicles. And now they're launching their ID, which is their all electric vehicle brand, but still they cannot catch up with Tesla. But Wall Street analysts, they're far less enthusiastic about Tesla than the investors. Now, out of a group of 37 analysts that were attracted by Bloomberg, 17 have issued sell ratings, 11 issued hold, and only 9 have issued buys. JP Morgan analyst Ryan Brinkman acknowledged that there are some factors that are in Tesla's favor, including the higher than expected earnings and the on-time launch of their new China plant, but he warned the joyride may come to an end. Either way though, Tesla proved something. People wanted EVs all along. Maybe if General Motors had stuck and kind of kept their EV1 or Ford didn't discontinue their EV Ranger truck in the 90s, they'd be doing way better than even Toyota or Volkswagen. But the key point is that now everybody's on the same page. The EV battle is only just beginning. Talking about Tesla again, I mean, there's a lot more news to cover. Elon Musk was seen in the Cybertruck around the SpaceX headquarters for an upcoming segment on Jay Leno's garage. Now, once again, it's kind of taking the spotlight at the Tesla Design Center at Hawthorne, California, the site where the Cybertruck made its shocking world debut. You know, the camera and the production crew, they were all setting up to film the scene near the famed Tesla supercharger monolith, and some spy shots, they showed Elon, he was inspecting the rear of the Cybertruck and its motorized rear tourniquet, and film crews that were quickly preparing to equip, uh, you know, their camera truck that would follow the stainless steel pickup all the way past the SpaceX Hawthorne facility. Now, Jay Leno, he was seen driving, and Elon was in the passenger seat, and somebody actually managed to film them in the traffic. And you know what? Jay Leno, he's been quoted before, he's all for electric cars, and a lot of people think, oh, well, he's a car guy, he's not going to be into the new kind of EV stuff, but he's a big supporter. He said, quote, I mean, the advantage of electricity, I have a Tesla, and I've had it for three years, and I've never done anything to it. There's no fluids to change, there's nothing. You know, for the new technology to succeed, it can't be equal, it's got to be better. And they've, you know, Tesla, sort of solved the battery problem. You know, it can go 350 to 400 miles at a charge. There's no maintenance, they're faster than a gas car, so there's no real reason to have a gas car unless you're doing long haul duty. Moving on to something a little bit more German now, Mercedes-Benz and the parent company, Daimler, uh, they're looking at kind of slowing their EV production. And you would think, why would they do this? This is the perfect time to make electric cars. They have a really cool EV. Now, they plan to make 60,000 of their Mercedes-Benz EQC model, but the forecasts, they were cut to 30,000, so literally in half. 
I mean, it's true, the world can only supply so much of something, and in this case, it's batteries. So we're starting to see a serious supply constraint, and all these automakers, including General Motors, Ford, they're all really trying to work on securing their own stash of batteries for all their upcoming EVs. And it's really important to note that they're not only just going to sell this EQC, there's also an EQA in the works, with cues taken from the latest GLA crossover. There's also going to be the EQS, which is kind of like, it's almost like the S-Class, but it's going to be the electric version of their flagship sedan, and that should probably start production fairly soon in the near future. But we always hear about these big car companies, but we don't really hear sometimes about the smaller companies, maybe some of the companies that are stealth at the moment. So there's one called, and it's a little London company, it's called Arrival, and it's made a boxy, futuristic looking shuttle bus. And this little thing is aimed at the commercial delivery market. Now the company says that it'll have a range of kind of around 300 miles, so really not that bad, And the, but the thing is with this, the design really is the best part. This really looks like the best small van that you could ever make. Now Hyundai and Kia, clearly they like the look of it, and they're making an investment of $110 million into Arrival. In a statement, Arrival said that it'll work with Hyundai and Kia to develop a variety of vehicles, initially for the commercial market. Those vehicles will be built on Arrival's modular vehicle platform, or known as the skateboard, that bundles motors, batteries, and chassis components all together. It's a bit like what Rivian's doing, and we know Rivian, they're backed by Ford, and they've got Amazon behind them, and Amazon actually has a contract to build 100,000 electric delivery vehicles for 2021. But going back to Arrival, they said that their vehicles will be equipped with advanced driver assist features and can be upgraded with self-driving systems. When it comes to price, the vehicles they're designed to sell for around about the same price as an internal combustion engine van, and it's all supposed to be built in micro factories, which is a strategy that's totally opposite from Tesla. Now Tesla, you know you always hear about Tesla with their gigafactories. Well, Arrival is going to do totally the opposite. Now, when it comes to last fall, Arrival, uh, they've actually been largely operating in stealth mode. Now, they hired General Motors veteran Michael Abelson, and he's to head the new North America operations. They've got a small factory in Banbury, England, and Arrival already has 800 employees, including Germany, Russia, and Israel. And again, if you think this is some concept van, Arrival said that it's already got its prototype delivery vans out in the field, and they're being tested by the Royal Mail, which is kind of like USPS for the UK, and DHL and UPS. So they're already out there, they're already testing them, and hopefully we'll get them here in North America. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live.
So when it comes to space exploration, we're going to have to rely on robots. And we've seen all sorts of humanoid robots, especially like Fedder, kind of looks like the big Terminator-esque, well, what you would think a robot should look like. And it's been very successful up to this point, and we've now got the Indian Space Research Organization with their own humanoid robot. Now, the chief uh, of the whole operation, Kalo Savadivo Sivan, confirmed the beginning of their third lunar mission, Chandrayaan-3. Now, this time, the organization wants to send a female humanoid robot named Vion Mitra on an unmanned mission. The unmanned flights are part of the bigger Gagnon project, which eventually will send Indian astronauts into space. So the ISRO unveiled the robot prototype Vion Mitra at a media event in Bengaluru, India, where they showed the bot off with her conversational skills. She quote said, I can be your companion and converse with astronauts, recognize them, and also report to their queries. At the event, the robot, I mean, to be honest, this robot did look more like a conservative businesswoman in a grey suit than an astronaut, but, you know, maybe that'll come a little later, but for now, she looks human enough. The robot can also mimic human crew, like switch panel operations, and that's all according to the ISRO chief, Sivan. However, while Vion Mitra can chat with astronauts, she's not built to be like them. And why do I say that? Well, the robot doesn't have a full body. Now, the ISRO scientist Sam Dayal said it's half humanoid because it doesn't have legs. It can only bend sidewards and forward. It will carry out certain experiments and will always remain in touch with the ISRO command center. Now, Vion Mitra will be on board the unmanned missions, and the ISRO has planned all of this to happen for December 2020 and June 2021. So again, this is very soon. She also isn't the first robot who's gone into space. As we know, we've got Fedder, but other legless robots like Robonaut 2, which launched on the ISS in 2011, and that performed experiments and stationary positions inside the craft. Then you had Karobo, which was the Japanese humanoid robot developed to entertain astronauts, which was sent to the ISS in 2014. Will this be a success? Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see on that one. But, you know, the use of a social robot in space it seems to be a more and more popular idea. You know, you've got psychological health that you need to be careful about, especially when you're in a confined space environment. So maybe having a humanoid robot talk to you, it could make it possible for humans to go out alone into space for long missions. A bit like the 2009 film Moon. Talking a bit more about launching into space, the United Launch Alliance loaded their super-cold liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen into an Atlas V rocket recently at the Cape Canaveral during the countdown dress rehearsal for a planned launch next month with the Solar Orbiter mission. Now, what is the Solar Orbiter mission? Well, it's a robotic spacecraft that's going to be able to study the origins of solar wind and image the sun's poles for the first time. Now, the Atlas V wet dress rehearsal, which was just done this Friday at the Cape Canaveral, 
Admiral's Complex 14 launch pad served as a practice run for the launch day procedures ULA crews will perform during the real countdown. The wet dress rehearsal is not only a part of the standard Atlas V launch campaign, but NASA requires extra tests for missions that have limited planetary launch windows. Solar Orbiter is such a mission, and it only has a 19-day launch opportunity for next month, beginning on February 5th to reach a near flyby with Venus in December. And that obviously uses the planet's gravity to slingshot it way closer to the sun. February 5th is the launch window as we know, and it's going to be specifically at 11.27pm Eastern Standard Time, and that extends for about 2 hours. But teams that are assessing schedules for the Atlas V and the Solar Orbiter after the 2 day delay in completing the wet dress rehearsal. So the launch delay is going to be beyond February 5th, and hopefully that doesn't happen though, but ULA previously had planned to perform the wet dress rehearsal on Wednesday. Uh, teams transferred the rocket to its mobile launch pad 41, and that was all on Tuesday to prepare for the countdown demonstration. But gusty winds Wednesday had dislodged a cooling duct connection between the Atlas V and the launch pad. Workers, they rolled the rocket back into ULA's vertical integration facility on Wednesday evening and fixed the problem, then they returned the Atlas V back to pad 41 Thursday along a quarter mile rail track between the assembly building and the launch mount. So the simulated countdown Friday included loading the Atlas V up with cryogenic liquid oxygen into the Atlas's first stage booster and Centaur stage. RP-1 kerosene, which fuels the first stage's RD-180 engine, was loaded into the Atlas V earlier this week after the rocket's first rollout Tuesday. The kerosene fuel was stored at room temperature and can remain on the rocket for extended periods of time, unlike the hydrogen and oxygen propellants. After the countdown, the final moments before ignition of the first stage main engine, ULA stopped the clock and began procedures to offload the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. After securing the rocket, teams then will return the Atlas V to the VIF on Saturday in preparation to attach the Solar Orbiter spacecraft. Now, the Solar Orbiter, because we should talk a little bit more about that, that's a cooperative mission led by the European Space Agency and NASA. Built in Britain by Airbus, Defence and Space, the Solar Orbiter spacecraft arrived at the Kennedy Space Centre aboard a transport plane from Europe on November 1st. Since then, the spacecraft has been tested, fueled, has been inside a clean room at the Astrotech payload processing facility nearby in Titusville. On Monday, technicians encapsulated the Solar Orbiter spacecraft inside the Atlas V rocket's payload fairing in preparation for a journey by road to the vertical integration facility at Pad 41, where the probe will be raised atop the launcher after it returns to the vertical hangar. For the Solar Orbiter mission, the Atlas V will fly in a rarely used 411 configuration that has a 4-meter fairing, a single strap-on solid rocket booster, and a Centaur upper stage powered by a single RL-10 engine. So the Solar Orbiter launch is going to mark the 82nd flight of the Atlas V rocket since 2002, and just the 6th Atlas V to use the 411 version. So 10 scientific instruments aboard the Solar Orbiter, like I said, they're going to measure the sun's output, and they're going to take the first detailed images of the sun's poles. So scientists will use this data from the Solar Orbiter in tandem with measurements from NASA's Parker Solar Probe to better 
understand what causes solar wind and what drives the 11-year solar cycle. After a series of gravity assist flybys of Venus, the solar orbiter's trajectory around the Sun will reach a tilt of some 25 degrees, allowing the spacecraft to take pictures of the Sun's poles for the first time. So definitely, this is not a launch you want to miss. Now, when we talk about getting to Mars or the Moon, you know, we have to use rovers for some of the operations. Doing tests, that's very important, and having something go wrong, that helps even more, because when we learn about how a rover is going to work, the worst thing that you can have is for everything to go perfectly. Now, just recently, there was a software glitch that left NASA's Curiosity rover frozen in place, forcing scientists to come up with a fix so that the robot could resume its exploration of Mars. So this is a multi-billion dollar rover, and it's been operating on Mars since mid-2012, unleashing a battery of tests and tools on the Red Planet top of a six-wheeled platform. But on January 20th this year, Curiosity encountered a little bit of a glitch, and that triggered it into safety mode, whereby the rover completely ceased any movement. Now, although the, there's a safety function, you know, it's, it's really good, it does prevent further scientific work when there really is nothing wrong. Now, according to Don Sumner, who's the planetary geologist at the University of California, Davis, said, the body awareness, also known as, quote, attitude, is checked before any motor on the rover is activated. That way, it stands a better chance of spotting a potential issue before it happens. Remember, this is a multi-billion dollar rover, so you need to have all these things in place to make sure nothing goes wrong. She said, when the answer is no, or maybe even maybe not, the Curiosity stops without turning its motor. This conservative approach helps keep the Curiosity from hitting its arm on rocks, driving over something dangerous, or pointing an unprotected camera at the sun. It was that safety evaluation which was interrupted with, quote, some knowledge of Curiosity's attitude of escaping it. Now, the rover did continue sending back information to Earth that allowed scientists on the ground to come up with a recovery plan. Now, she said the engineers on the team built a plan to inform Curiosity of its attitude and to confirm what had happened. We want Curiosity to recover its ability to make its safety checks, and we also want to know if there's anything we can do to prevent a similar problem from happening in the future. So happily, you know, the fix worked. The atmospheric scientist Scott Guzwich at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center confirmed that all in an update, all went well, and the rover is getting enough knowledge about its own positioning to resume activities. In the future, the hope is that the rover will be able to make more automatic recoveries and get underway again, rather than requiring all this sort of a remote intervention. Now, over at Saturn's moon Enceladus, there's now an even better chance of supporting extraterrestrial life than previously thought. Researchers have discovered its oceans are more complex than first believed. The moon and its oceans, they shoot plumes of carbon dioxide into space, and researchers have found that using data from NASA's Cassini spacecraft, that the findings published in the geophysical research letters point to reactions between the water and the core of the celestial satellite as the source of complexity. And that was all thanks to a new technique discovered by the researchers. SWRI researcher Christopher Glean said, by understanding the composition of the plume, we can learn about what the ocean is like. How did it come to be this way? And whether it provides an environment where life as we know it could survive. 
we came up with a new technique for analyzing the plume composition to estimate the concentration of the dissolved CO2 in the ocean. This enabled modeling to probe deeper into the interior processes. But talking a little bit about the Cassini craft, uh, so the Cassini spacecraft intentionally plunged itself into Saturn's atmosphere back in September 2017, after it was launched in 1997 at a total cost of $3.9 billion dollars. Remember, that was 2.5 billion was in pre-launch costs and 1.4 billion in post-launch costs, because obviously we had to monitor this thing for the last 13 years. So it was circling and studying and taking data of Saturn and its moons, and combined with the previous discoveries of molecular hydrogen and silica, the abundance of carbon dioxide reacting with the core of the moon and the water of the moon's subsurface oceans, it did add quite a lot of credence to the idea that there are energy sources on Enceladus that could support life. So, you know, SWRI's Hunter Waite said, the dynamic interface of complex core and seawater could potentially create energy sources that might support life. While we haven't found evidence of a presence or a microbial life in the ocean of Enceladus, the growing evidence for chemical disequilibrium offers a tantalizing hint that habitable conditions could exist beneath the moon's icy crust. Glean said the implications for possible life enabled by a heterogeneous core structure are very intriguing. This model could explain how planetary differentiation and alteration processes create chemical gradients needed for subsurface life. Prior to the flybys of Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 in the early 1980s, not much was known about the ocean world moon despite it being discovered in 1789. In 2017, NASA founded the presence of hydrogen in its atmospheres, something Linda Spilker, who's the Cassini project scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, said at the time could be meaningful as, quote, a potential source for energy from any microbes. One year later, scientists made a startling announcement when they said that they had found complex organic molecules, the building blocks of life, on the actual moon. Separately, that year, researchers determined that Enceladus Ocean is most likely 1 billion years old, placing it in the sweet spot for supporting life. But as we know, Enceladus is not the only celestial satellite of Saturn to kind of intrigue scientists. In June, NASA announced the latest mission for its new Frontiers program. It's going to be known as Dragonfly, and the mission is going to explore Saturn's largest moon. Titan, which could potentially host extraterrestrial life. But one thing is very clear, the 2020s is when we're going to find out. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer on SoundCloud. This show's broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore. It's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond.